Will you open your Bibles to Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel, chapter 40. August is sort of um, obscure month, a little bit, in the sense that each year I try to uh, preserve August to at least consider touching on parts of the word that we might never otherwise get to. So that's why we're in the last eight, nine chapters of Ezekiel. So as you turn there, and I'll, I'll pick up maybe a little bit where Lynn left off with this, uh, a reflection from Burkina. In Burkina Faso, everybody has cell phones, and, but there are no telephones. There's no telephone infrastructure because uh, like many places uh, you might call third world or underdeveloped, um, telephones are massive infrastructure things that take a tremendous amount of, uh, of just industrial might to build. And so many places in Africa have no telephone poles, no telephone wires. They don't even have that many roads, more or less, how to even get somewhere with the telephone. So they just don't have it, but now they have the cell phone. Everybody has a cell phone. It's so much easier to throw up a cell tower that services a great significant region than it would be to build kind of the infrastructure for a telephone. And I wonder, or I muse a little bit, at the thought of how someone in West Africa might come to America and see our telephone infrastructure is so outmoded as obsolete or as irrelevant. It's a strange thought because in a way, they were able to skip something that we are going through. The other day, about a year ago, I actually took a picture of it. I saw a maintenance crew taking out a phone booth. And I thought, I may never see a phone booth again. So I took a picture of them, like, demolishing the phone booth. Um, The telephone... The telephone line, is that, is that just an obsolete or irrelevant notion that now that we have the cell phone, we can sort of live there? And I think the answer is obviously no. I, not that I'm fighting for the telephone. I could care less about that line of reasoning. My, my thought is, is that the cell phone still operates on very much the same principles. It owes itself to the very principles of the telephone that it even exists. I mention this because we're going to talk about the temple for three weeks. The next three weeks, we're talking about the temple, the temple of God, the house of the Lord. Almost every song you you sang today welcomed you into God's temple or his house. And we as Christians can in some ways boldly proclaim that we are no longer dependent on a temple in Jerusalem to go to. We don't need to bring sacrifice. That massive infrastructure, the Jewish cultic infrastructure of sacrifice and the priesthood and just all of the ritual that God had instituted has in some ways been surpassed through the work of Jesus. I have access to God here, not just in Jerusalem. 
I have audience with the Lord here, not just in the inner court. I enjoy the righteousness before God now, even though I haven't <clears throat> slaughtered anything because of what Jesus has done. And it can raise the question, is the idea of the temple therefore irrelevant or obsolete? Especially since we're about to spend three weeks on it. And I think the answer is no. When we studied 1 Corinthians earlier this summer, Paul said once, he said, I, like a skilled master builder, laid a foundation. Speaking of Jesus, it was Jesus. I taught, I laid the foundation of Christ upon which others built. He ends that section with, for God is holy and you are his temple. In Ephesians, he writes, in him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God through the Holy Spirit. What is that? That's the temple. When we talked about uh, you know, our efforts, and you know, as our efforts to expand and improve this facility, the campaign was called Living Stones because we want to remind ourselves that what? We are, we are the temple. We are God's holy building. Right? First Peter 2 says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's us. Same principles at work. Romans, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing. Temple. We want to be careful that as we sort of embrace the supremacy of Jesus, and we see how some things fade in sort of explicit significance that we don't just relegate them to obsolescence. Because while the temple, while our hope in, in God is fulfilled through Christ, because he's our great priest and he's the great sacrifice and he gives us access to the most holy God in the most holy place, while that all may be true, the Lord has not left the concept. He uses the concept with us, which makes me think we should understand it. We should embrace it. We should say today and, and often, what does it mean that we are the temple of God? We are God's temple. We are the house of God. We'll see what Ezekiel has to say about that. Let me say a little word about Ezekiel before we turn to the scriptures. Ezekiel is a prophet, which is like a preacher, Okay, prophets preached. Sometimes we think prophets are fortune tellers. Rarely that's the case. Mostly they're saying old stuff again, just with more volume. And Ezekiel is preaching among a group of people called exiles. There was a remnant of Israel when, because of Israel's sinfulness, because they had abandoned God, because they had forsaken the Lord and turned to idols, because they had forsaken the Lord and had treated one another with violence and animosity, because there was no more justice in the city or regard for their fellow man, because of all these reasons, all of these reasons which had been encased in a covenant, a holy contract between God and Israel, 
Because they had violated all of that, the Lord raised up a people called Babylon and allowed the Babylonians to sack Jerusalem. And in the process of conquering Jerusalem, they took away a remnant of people back to their capital city in Babylon. We say that those people went into exile. And uh, they took many Jews back. Daniel, if you know Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Ezekiel, Esther's part of this sort of narrative story. Significant part of the history of the Hebrews is how, how they understood being cast into exile. And Ezekiel is a prophet of God who God raised up among the exiles so that he could help them understand why they are where they are. So way over here is Jerusalem and significant suffering to the point where the city will ultimately be destroyed and the temple will ultimately be destroyed. Over there, that's all happening. A thousand miles away are the exiles with Ezekiel helping them understand why it's happening. Because the truth is they were pulled away because of their sinfulness, so they could not. Very often when sin has hold of us, we cannot see why things are happening to us. We lack the ability to perceive the very things that are wrong. And so God gave them Ezekiel to sometimes kind of shout down at them why they are where they are. And the book of Ezekiel is arranged very thematically. So it's not actually, it's not chronologically. It's arranged in a theme. And the book sort of shows the contour of, of the ministry where Ezekiel is preaching very hard, very indicting things to Israel. But as time goes on, the indictment begins to turn to a promise for a new hope. So that by the end of the book, Ezekiel is preaching hope. It's just beautiful hope. And that's where we are. We're at the end of Ezekiel in his last vision, which is a vision of hope for the people. One last thing. This vision is preceded by another very important vision, which we're not going to read. It's Ezekiel 8. And in Ezekiel 8, Ezekiel is sitting in Babylon and he has this vision. And in this vision, the Lord catches Ezekiel up and they fly through the air all the way to Jerusalem. And Ezekiel lands in the temple. And the first thing, and when he gets there, there's a man. He's like a tour guide, an angelic tour guide. And this angel shows Ezekiel the temple. And the first thing Ezekiel sees is the glory of the splendor of God filling the temple. God's glory is filling the temple. And then the man says to Ezekiel, I want to show you something. And he begins to take him on this whirlwind tour of the temple where everywhere he goes, something abominable is being done. Some terrible thing is taking place. So he goes over here and in the entryway, in the entryway to God's temple is a huge idol that's been erected. And the tour guide says, I'll show you even worse than this. And he takes him over here and he says, there's a hole in the wall and, and the, 
the man says, dig, tells Ezekiel, dig through the hole in the wall and look and see what you can see. And when he pushes his head through, he sees every kind of creepy and crawly sort of creature imaginable. All of the things that were placed outside of the law are crawling around the temple, up the walls and all over the place. And the tour guide says, you think that's big? I'll show you something else. And he takes them station to station all around the temple until like the overwhelming feeling is there is nothing good happening here whatsoever. And the Lord plucks Ezekiel up and sticks him on a hillside and says, now watch. And as he watches, the glory of the Lord that was residing in the temple climbs up and exits out of the temple and through the east gate of the temple and leaves. It departs. And after that is a judgment. God is no longer here. This is no longer his building. This is no longer his city. It's subject to destruction. And for a season, God will make himself a small sanctuary with the people in exile. And that's what happened. The city was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. And the people in exile are trying to understand, is God dead? Is he asleep? Is he weak? What happened? And Ezekiel is their guide. Now, I'm going to read four verses to start with, just to give us a little bit of... Uh, it's Ezekiel 40, and these are the four introductory verses. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was struck down, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me. And he brought me to the city. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city to the south. When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand. And he was standing in the gateway and the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and set your heart upon all that I shall show you, for you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. Does it sound familiar to the story I told you in Ezekiel 8? It's almost a story in reverse. I mean, he flies back, he stands, he's looking down on what is presumably the, the temple of God and standing in the east gate where God departed the temple is this angelic tour guide ready to show him once again something new. Now I want to read one more verse uh, just because uh, there's, a, there's a lot of measuring that's about to happen, and I want you to have a sense of it. It's, I'm going to read half of verse 5. And behold, there was a wall all around the outside of the temple area, and the length of the measuring reed in the man's hand was six long cubits, each being a cubit and a hand breadth in length. I'll stop there. Okay, we don't have a long foot and a short foot. We just have a foot. Okay, they have a long cubit. It's called a royal cubit. 
A cubit is 18 inches. It's your elbow to your fingers, okay? A long cubit is plus a hand breadth, okay? So it's 21 inches. He's saying the man, this angelic architectural tour guide, is holding a reed, and the reed is six long cubits, which is exactly seven normal cubits. Okay, that, that's how the math works. I can't do that now, but I did it a lot earlier, and I'm right. It's six long cubits or several normal cubits equals his reed, okay, which is roughly ten and a half feet. So those like emergency lights over there, that's ten and a half feet up. That's a reed. That's what he's holding. Okay, so what I'm about to read, R-E-A-D, <clears throat> Um, I'm going to read a small section of what happens for the next two and a half chapters. You're going to hear a lot of measurements. Uh, you may fall asleep. I do not expect, not because I look down on you, just because I can't do it, so I feel like I'm sort of average. I don't expect the average person is going to be able to picture in their mind exactly what's happening here. Like... Uh, I think the details will sort of expand beyond what you can hold. So don't feel bad about that. Don't feel like you're failing the intent of the reading. I just want you to listen and get the gist of the kind of text it is. Get whatever you you get. Okay? So be at ease. And I'll read until you can't stand it anymore. I'll read about verse 16. Okay, I'm going to pick up at the second half of verse 5. Um, right, he said there was a wall. There's a big wall, and I, I'm t- I know this from other later readings. It's a big wall that's going around the whole temple. Okay, so he's talking about the wall. So he measured the thickness of the wall. One reed. And the height. One reed. Then he went into the gateway facing east, going up its steps, and measured the threshold of the gate, one reed deep. And the side rooms, one reed long and one reed broad. And the space between the side rooms, five cubits. And the threshold of the gate by the vestibule of the gate at the inner end, one reed. Then he measured the vestibule of the gateway on the inside, one reed. Then he measured the vestibule of the gateway eight cubits, and its jams, two cubits. And the vestibule of the gate was at the inner end. And there were three side rooms on either side of the east gate. The three rooms were of the same size, and the jams on either side were of the same size. Then he measured the width of the opening of the gateway, ten cubits, and the length of the gateway, thirteen cubits. There was a barrier before the side rooms, one cubit on either side, and the side rooms were six cubits on either side. Then he measured the gate from the ceiling of one of the side rooms to the ceiling of the other, a breadth of 25 cubits, and the openings faced each other. He measured also the vestibule, 20 cubits, and around the vestibule of the gateway was the court. From the court of the gate at the entrance of the front of the inner vestibule of the gate was 50 cubits, and the gateway had windows all around narrowing inwards towards the side rooms, and toward their jams. Likewise, the vestibule had windows all around, inside, and on the jams were palm trees. There. Now, if all you remember is that there were palm trees on the jams, that's okay. 
Do you feel it? You hear the detail? So what was just described to you, so you got a wall going around the temple. I'm going to, so I have done the service of reading all of the chapters at length. I'll briefly summarize. What he's describing is the temple and its, its territory. And the temple has a wall prescribing the perimeter that is 500 cubits by 500 cubits, which is roughly three football fields by three football fields. And the wall is 10, feet high, 10 and a half feet high and 10 and a half feet deep, one reed. That, by the way, is the only height dimension that is clearly visible in the entire two or three chapters. Everything else is, you have a sense of, well, that's three stories high, but I don't know how high that is. And this wall, if you think of it as a perfect square, on the west side of the square is where the temple stand, will stand. And the temple has its own sort of magisterial dimensions, 100 cubits by 50 cubits. The, the roll of hundreds and fifties. 50, by the way, is a special number. It's the number of jubilee, the number of freedom, the number of hope. So things tend to be 50 in this temple. And there's palm trees. There's a lot of peace and a lot of 50s here. And there are three gates that open into the temple grounds, one on the south side, one on the east side, and one on the north side. Again, the temple is on the west side. The Lamb should do that for you, right? And there's one on the south, one on the east, and one on the north, but there's also an inner court, and there's three gates on that. There's one on the south, and one on the east, and one on the north, and they are in perfect line with each other. So to walk into the north gate, you would stare ahead of you and see right in front of you the north gate of the inner court, it would just be a straight shot to get into the temple. I don't think, I, I don't know exactly why, you know, we talk north, south, east, west. I don't exactly know why God has chosen to put his temple on the west with those three gates. This is, this is my best answer. I, I have two, but I'll give you one of them. In Israel, Israel sits against the sea. And so in so much of the literature of the Jews, mankind is to the south and to the north and to the east of them. That's the world to them. So you might see this picture somewhat symbolically as the temple of God is opening, opening to the world, at least is the way that it's described. Because to the back of the Israelites is the great sea of Middle Earth. It's the Mediterranean. It's It's ocean. So the world is the world as they speak about it is to the north, south, and east. All around, there's hundreds and there's fifties and there's these careful measurements. Also, it, it it's ascending, so you have to climb stairs to get into the first gate, and you have to ascend again to get into the temple. There's this very detailed picture. So I mean, that's chapter forty. That's chapter forty-one. That's chapter forty-two. I mean, all that we read was the east gate. But it turns out the east gate is identical to the south gate and the north gate and the inner gates. There is a perfect symmetry in the description here, perfect. If you were to draw a line through the middle of the east gate, east-west across the temple grounds, you would have perfect symmetry north and south. I don't. I don't suspect, nor do I have the ability to delve into deep numerology as to the significance of 13 cubits versus 5 cubits. I, I, don't, 
I don't know, nor do I suspect that the real meaning of the teaching is hiding there. I think the large teaching is sitting at the level of seeing God has arranged his house perfectly. The numbers are perfect. Everything's in order. There's symmetry. Listen, you're the house of God, so hear it. God has ordained that his house would be perfect. In order. Nothing wrong. That's what one day, one day, he will return to a perfect house. It's very important for the temple of God to hear this. He's distinct. He's well measured. There is no chaos in God. There is no confusion. He is as it should be. And he is building us into his temple. The other thing that I think is worth spending some time on is the walls and the gate. It's cost me some level of of work to try to understand the walls because I don't understand temples as normally having walls. I understand Jerusalem has walls and cities have walls and kingdoms have walls and castles have walls, but this temple has walls. And the walls aren't even that big, ten and a half feet. (laughs) Not that tall. And he gives almost no attention whatsoever to the walls. We have one sentence on the beginning, and later on we get to figure out the dimensions. Otherwise, what I read, what I read to you, one sentence about the walls, a lot of stuff about the gate. Not that you, you know, not that we know more about the gate, but we certainly heard more about the gate. The gate is embellished. The wall is. You know, what does a wall do? A wall is a line of demarcation. A wall prescribes a boundary, a territory. Inside the wall, the house of God. Inside the wall, sacred. Inside the wall, set apart. Inside the wall, holy. Inside the wall, different. Inside the wall, special. You hear it, temple? Inside the wall, particular purposeful, righteous. It's different than outside the wall. And the walls are meshed with these gates, these significant, brilliant, well-described gates, these wide-open gates. There's a sense of the wall reminds me things are different on the other side, but the gates remind me I'm welcomed in. (laughs) There's a nature of God, right? The nature of God is, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will make you distinct. We come as we are, but we don't stay the same. Next week, I don't know if we'll have a chance to read it, something really awesome. So I might say it again next week because it's so awesome. He talks about when people come, when people visit, they come to the temple, they'll come mostly through the south and the north gate. He says, if you come through the south gate, you have to leave out of the north gate. And if you come in the north gate, you have to leave out of the south gate. I have this feeling of God saying, you're going to leave different than you came. You're different. So we have these gates welcoming us in and these walls reminding us, well, it's different in there than it is out here. Let 
Let's go to 43. I, I, we'll turn our attention to why, why all of this talk in the first place. Now, I'm going to read a few verses, four verses, four or five verses. I want you, I'm going to ask you to try to remember back to when I shared to you about that old vision, that old vision where the Spirit of the Lord departed the decrepit, abominable, perverse temple full of irregularity and sin, and God left it. Just remember that as I read this. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. This is 43 verse 1. And behold, the glory of God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision I had seen at the Chebar Canal, and I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Can you imagine how much hope this is for the people? They're in exile. And it's been hard message after hard message after hard message. And finally, like Ezekiel gets this vision. And his vision is, I have a vision. God is going to build his new temple. And he's coming back to us. I think that matters even for us now who were living in between the visitation of Jesus, right? Jesus came and he left. I, I think this is an eternal enough picture, a far away enough picture, a picture that's in front of us even to be reminded by hope. God is doing something with us and he's coming back for us. He will fill his temple and we are his temple. Now, I'll get to 6 to 9 next week, but I'll, I'll end with 10 through 12. As for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and they shall measure the plan. And if they are ashamed of all they have done, make known to them the, the design of the temple, its arrangements, its exits, its entrances, that is, its whole design. And make known to them, as well as all of its statutes and its whole design and its, all its laws, and write it down in their sight, so that they may observe all its laws and all its statutes and carry them out. This is the law of the temple." The whole territory on the top of the mountain, all around, shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. It, it, the real word there is Torah. Like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy is Torah. He's saying this is the Torah of the temple. He's almost giving them a new law. Well, what strikes me is that in the hope, I mean, in this hope-filled chapter 40 through 48 of God establishing his temple, of God establishing, coming back and dwelling with man. I mean, we're going to read, there's some really beautiful things that we're going to read over the next several chapters. In all of this, which I'm convinced is hope-filled, is this line, which is, let them see it, and when they see it, they'll be ashamed. Verse 10. As for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple that they may be ashamed of their iniquities.
Is that what this is all about? Is God doing all of this just so that I'm ashamed of myself? I, I the, the ESV, which is what I'm reading, I, I, like, what, I like how it, it works, the language out here. It's translated variously, but I do still think the heart of this is caught. It goes on to say, 11, and if they are ashamed of all they've done, make known to them the design. If Show them. Show them and tell them what I told you. And the right response of a people in exile, a people who are sinful, a people whose lives are full of iniquity, a people whose actions forced me to destroy the old temple in the first place, that right and good result, a sign of life from these people, that they understand what I'm trying to do is that they would in fact feel shame. Shame would be the appropriate knee-jerk response to somebody who's actually attracted to God. He says, and if they feel shame, keep talking. (laughs) Some translations say, and when they feel shame, continue to describe. The notion is, how can you, how can we, temple of God, how can we look upon what God is really trying to do with us, really trying to do with us, perfectly trying to describe with us, how he's really trying to represent himself in this world with us. How can we possibly see and know that and not feel it in the gut? That's a sign, of, that's a sign that you're alive in God is to see what God has intended to do with you all along in its symmetrical perfection in his exquisite design to see exactly how he would have, would have handled us if we were but always willing all the time to see that a sign of life is to go, oh, it's the very reason Ezekiel falls on his face when the Lord shows up. It's the very reason Isaiah falls on his face when the Lord shows up. It's the very way people behave when they understand God for who he is. And he says, and when they feel ashamed, pick them back up. Keep telling them, because I will do it with you. I will do it with you. It's his will that his temple would be pure. Do you hear that temple of, temple of God? Do you hear that? God is trying. And God will one day, right? This is a fulfillment passage. So we're, we, are, we are knowing what God will ultimately do and in that knowing what he would do. Now, God will one day perfect his house. Now, he wants us to draw into him, to long to know what is the law of his temple? How would he have me be? What what are the straight lines that he would cut for me and the right measurements that he have, would have me live my life? This is a passage saying to the house of God, you are to be holy in the Lord. Distinct, separate, unique, sacred, different. I'll close with this thought because it... Um, You can't think about the temple and Jesus without reminding yourself, Jesus is my high priest. Jesus is my sacrifice. And even think things like, 
uh, the scriptures where God is a mighty fortress. And then I think, yeah, and Jesus is my gate. He's my way in. He is the way. There's a sense that in the shame that I feel is like Christ saying, walk my way. Come through my gate. Come visit the priest. Come take the sacrifice. He's everything. So, so I kind of carry my shame in. And he takes it. And he begins to make us unique. Not so much unique from one another. Unique for him. I'm going to close this in prayer, but my hope would be, even as we sort of think about setting out and, you know, to those of you who do sort of hit control, out delete in September, allow holiness to be a word that God intends for you. God wants you to be pure. And he would mark you out straight. Lord, we are, uh, you make straight lines with crooked sticks and we are grateful for that. You've done much with little. You've made much from little. You offer and promise to one day turn these wretched tents into gleaming temples. And, and so we look forward to that, Lord. We anticipate it in faith. It's our hope, but how can hope not move us, God? If we truly have hope in these things, Lord, I pray that that would be met with the fruit of drawing close. As I pray, and I'm, I just welcome you as an individual to sit and think about how, how would your life measure out? How is it distinct and special and holy? How does it, how does it contrast with the vulgar and the profane that sit outside the walls of God. Because you're the temple. You're part of the temple. You're a dressed stone in that wall. Father, it's our prayer that you would continue the work you've done. And this fall even, if you would allow better ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to set its attention upon the passages that call us to holiness. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.